Although Haiti is often referred to in the media as the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, it is a country that won independence after the Haitian Revolution and became the first country to be founded by formerly enslaved persons. The impact of the Haitian Revolution was felt far and wide, including in the United States, where Haiti played a large role in the African-American quest for freedom and dignity. Joining us today is Dr. Leslie Alexander, a historian and author of the recently released book, Fear of a Black Republic, Haiti and the Birth of Black Internationalism in the United States. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Alexander. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Your upcoming book is titled Fear of a Black Republic, Haiti and the Birth of Black Internationalism in the United States. And I'm wondering, as we get started, if you could briefly explain black internationalism for our listeners. Sure. Thank you so much. So black internationalism, I would say probably over the past decade or more, um, has become a growing subfield in African-American history. And what Black internationalism is really concerned with is how Black activists in the United States interacted with and agitated for Black liberation outside of the boundaries of the United States. So it's really interested in um, to what extent did Black activists become interested in global Black liberation struggles, um, how did their activism manifest, and how did they work collaboratively with other activists around the world to fight for social justice beyond the boundaries of the United States. So you've written about the existence of a transnational consciousness between Black activists. So can you talk about the concept of transnational consciousness and the role it's played in shaping activism, and how does it connect to Black internationalism? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Thank you. I, You know, one of the the distinctions that I wanted to make in the introduction of my book is the difference between a pan-African or a transnational consciousness and what I'm thinking of as Black internationalism in the United States, which is really about hands-on activism. And I think it's important to emphasize that a transnational or pan-Africanist consciousness existed from the very beginning of the transatlantic trade in humans. And essentially what I describe in the introduction is that that consciousness was powerfully important that as people are being dispersed across the diaspora, they're being sold away from their family members, um, from their loved ones, and they have a sense that these folks are being cast elsewhere in the diaspora essentially never to be seen or, or heard from again. So even from the earliest years of the transatlantic trade in humans, enslaved Africans had a consciousness that they were deeply connected to people who had been cast across um, the diaspora. What I think is significant about Black internationalism and, and the distinction that I create is that Black internationalism becomes sort of the next significant step in Pan-Africanist consciousness. It's one in which people start to think about how do I actually agitate for and promote 
liberation struggles that are happening in other countries. So one is sort of a consciousness. I have a sense that I'm connected to other folks of African descent across the diaspora. Black internationalism is about how do I mobilize that sense of interconnectedness? How do I, in the case of Haiti, how do I help promote the cause of Haitian sovereignty? How do I participate in helping to build Haiti as a strong, independent, sovereign nation? So it's sort of the difference between thought and action. Now, you've noted that existing scholarship on transnational Black activism concentrates almost exclusively on the 20th century. However, in fear of a Black republic, you try to shift the focus to the 19th century. And I'm wondering if you could talk to our audience a bit more about the importance of the 19th century for transnational Black organizing. Yeah, absolutely. To me, this was really the motivating vision that initially inspired this particular book, which was that 20th century historians like Carol Anderson and Keto Swan and Keisha Blaine and a whole host of folks who specialize in the 20th century were producing these extraordinary studies that were helping us better understand how Black internationalism was mobilized during that period. But no one had really looked at the origins of Black internationalist activism and Black internationalist consciousness in the 19th century. And I felt like it was really important for us to understand the roots, the origins, the foundation of what Black internationalist consciousness originally became. And I was in part inspired by a comment that I heard at a conference where someone was sort of castigating Black abolitionists in the 19th century in the United States for being so focused on the United States that they didn't know about or didn't care about Black liberation struggles that were happening elsewhere. And it just so happened that at the time I heard that comment, I was working on a different research project that was using all of the Black newspapers from the 19th century. So I just knew factually that wasn't an accurate statement. I knew that they were actually deeply interested in what was happening in global Black liberation struggles. And it was concerning to me that people just sort of took as a given that Black activists didn't know about what was happening elsewhere in the world. And so when I actually originally started to create this project, I had originally planned to look at a whole series of countries. I was going to look at Haiti alongside Cuba, alongside Jamaica, and even perhaps look at Brazil, because Black activists were also really concerned with destroying slavery in Brazil. So I had originally imagined this like, you know, multifaceted project that looked comparatively at all these countries. But the deeper that I dug into the project, the more clear it became that Black internationalist consciousness was really born around the struggle for Haitian sovereignty, the recognition of Haitian sovereignty, and that Haiti was really sort of at the root of the story. It also became clear to me that if I was going to try to talk about all of these other countries, I was going to end up writing, you know, a five volume, you know, 1200 page book. So I finally decided to just focus in on Haiti because I really saw the establishment of Haiti as a sovereign Black nation as sort of the birth of Black internationalist consciousness in the U.S. 
That's terrific. And I would love for you to talk a little bit more about the Haitian Revolution and its yeah. implications during that time frame, but also today, right? Because if, if we think of the ways in which the media and international NGOs frame Haiti, it's often in the context of its challenges, the structural weaknesses, natural disasters. But there's really a very rich and vibrant history that provided strength not only to people in Haiti, but as you said, created this consciousness across the Americas. Right. I think that's a really important point. You know, there's been a longstanding tradition in the United States media of painting Haiti as this failed nation, um, as this, you know, problematic political project, as, you know, the, the most popular phrase is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. But of course, all of those things are talked about completely devoid of historical context. And of course, part of what I was really wanting to do with this book was to shine a light on what U.S. foreign policy towards Haiti has been, of course, in part during the 20th century, but to really understand its roots in the 19th century, to see how U.S. policy towards Haiti was driven by a desire that the United States, France, many of the the white Western nations at the time had to ensure that Haiti would never thrive and survive. And that is in part what really inspired the title, Fear of a Black Republic. Because part of the point that I was wanting to make is that white folks during the 19th century around the globe were terrified by the vision and the symbol of what Haiti represented. Here is a country that came into being as the result of a rebellion of enslaved people who were throwing off the shackles of slavery, but were also throwing off the shackles of colonialism. Part of the point that I really wanted to make in this book is that the Haitian Revolution on its own terms was incredibly important. But what was ultimately important is what it resulted in, which was the establishment of a sovereign Black nation, the first sovereign Black nation in the Western Hemisphere that was founded shortly on the heels of the first independent republic in the Western Hemisphere, which was the United States. And yet Haiti received a much different response, right, from the global community than the United States did when it gained its independence. And of course, activists at the time were very clear about the parallels between those stories, right? The establishment of the United States was also about throwing off the shackles of colonialism, right? Rejecting English authority and establishing their independence. And Haitian freedom fighters envisioned themselves in much the same way as people, again, who were throwing off slavery, but who were also throwing off the shackles of colonialism and were imagining that like any other people on the planet, they had the right to establish their own nation and to declare their independence. And yet the fact that Haiti was a nation founded by formerly enslaved Black people meant that it was treated in the global community in, in radically different ways. And this was really the point that 19th century Black activists wanted to raise, right, as a contradiction and insist that Haiti be treated and respected in the same way that any other sovereign nation would be. So I'd love to come back to a point you made earlier about the supposed disconnect between the activism in the United States and these movements that are emerging, you know, in a pan-African context. And I'm wondering whether 
those misperceptions occur because of the lack of education that we have in schools or the limited knowledge, you know, because we tend to focus on one or two people as movement leaders and not appreciate the full breadth of the landscape? Or is there something else going on? What What is your take on the problem and how do we remedy it? Yeah, I mean, I think you're certainly right that part of it is about the educational system, right? And how the history of certainly slavery and the history of Black folks are taught in this country, but really how history in general, right, is taught in this country. It's taught from a very sort of skewed perspective. And I think you're right also that there has been a tradition in this country of kind of teaching what historians would call the great man history, you know, choosing one or two huge heroes, a George Washington or a Thomas Jefferson. In the case of Black history, it would be a Frederick Douglass, right? And just sort of raising up that one particular person and viewing them as sort of this amazing anomaly of history. When in reality, historical change and transformation happens when people, large communities of people who share a common vision come together, right? The abolitionist movement was not Frederick Douglass by himself, right? He was part of a a much larger collective of people. And I think that approach of only focusing on sort of the great men um, and only wanting to tell one particular story leads us down a path that ultimately results in a very kind of skewed perception of what has happened in the past. But I think the other problem, and I think this is something that is unique to trying to understand Black internationalist consciousness in the 19th century, is that people imagine that Black folks in the 19th century were not intellectual and political thinkers. I remember a number of years ago, I I taught a graduate seminar that was called 19th Century Black Political and Intellectual Thought. And the second day of class, the students came back and said, you know, I spoke to some of my professors about my course schedule and the classes that I was taking. And they reported a situation in which professors and other students alike were like, oh, well, that's going to be a really short class. I mean, 19th century Black political thought, like, what would that class cover, you know, Um, which reflected this sort of contemporary idea that, again, that Black people in the 19th century were not political and intellectual thinkers. And I think that's a really important idea that we have to disrupt and uproot, because even people who did not have access to education, even folks who were not literate, even folks who were enslaved, were still politically and intellectually thinking. And I think it's really important that we understand activist consciousness in the 19th century as legitimate political and intellectual thought, regardless of who was doing the thinking. And it's part of the reason why, you know, obviously a large portion of this book traces free Black literate political activists. And it's because they're the ones who left behind the wealth of sources, right, that we can actually look at, where they're writing essays, they're giving speeches, they're publishing newspaper articles. And so they left us a paper trail that we can actually look at. But in this book, I also tried to go out of my way to try to think about what non-literate enslaved people might have also been thinking about Haiti, 
And one of my favorite chapters is chapter five, which a large portion of it traces the history of a song that enslaved people sang over the course of like 30 years. The first manifestation I saw of it was in 1825. And the last one is like in 1859. So it's actually almost 40 years. The song is all about what enslaved people imagine it would look like and feel like to escape the bonds of slavery in the United States and go to Haiti, where they can live as free and equal people. And it's a song that, you know, I describe as kind of very sort of classic African rhetorical style, where as it moves along the coastline and as it evolves over the years, People are riffing, right, on different topics, um, bringing attention to particular grievances that they have with slavery and particular hopes and dreams that they imagine a life in Haiti might look like. But part of the point that I'm really trying to make in analyzing that song and in sort of doing a deep dive in that particular chapter is to really shed light on the fact that, again, non-literate enslaved people are still thinking about Haiti right? They're still engaging it as a political project. They're still imagining what a free and fully sovereign Haiti might look like and investing in the idea of what that means to Black people, not just in Haiti, but elsewhere in the diaspora. This is really fascinating because I think about not only these songs that you're talking about, but also the use of slave narratives by people who had escaped, or I think of the writing of Harriet Jacobs. There's so many women in that time frame who wrote really beautifully and powerfully about the human experience. And of course, the use of photography to really self-fashion and to create an image and to project a sense of dignity and uh, universality, right? And so there's so many forms in which intellectual thought, political thought, were really being developed and disseminated both within the African-American community, but also more broadly across society. And of course, in this sort of more global context. So I'm really excited about your book and I'm hoping that folks get a chance to read it. I'd like to pivot to talking about a more recent set of events, the protests of 2020, that occurred in the aftermath, of course, of the killings of several unarmed Black men and women by police and vigilantes. And in the aftermath of that, we saw, you know, sort of protests happening not just in the U.S. and the rise of Black Lives Matter movement, but also protests around the world that was supporting Black liberation. So I'm wondering how you would characterize that moment, what we accomplished and what still needs to be done. Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. In my mind, it's the question that really has been consuming my thoughts a great deal because, as you know, the newest project that I'm working on is about the long history of policing in Black communities and trying to sort of understand how we got here relative to the contemporary crisis around um, policing. I will say that I found at the time a great deal of hope and inspiration in the protests that broke out across the world following the murder of George Floyd. And of course, they were also um, protesting against the, the murder of Breonna Taylor and 
a whole series of folks, even I think in some cases, the murder of, of people like Ahmaud Arbery, even though he was not killed by police, right? He was killed by a white supremacist, white nationalist consciousness that I think was bringing um, a lot of protesters to the streets. And I was quite frankly stunned by the size, the scope, the volume, and the diversity of the protests that were taking place, certainly in the United States, right? In, in rural towns, in, you know, small villages where people probably have tried to avoid the topic of race or found the issue of race irrelevant, you know, found themselves polarized and grappling with questions of race and policing. And as you said, we also saw like an extraordinary outpouring of support for the Black Lives Matter movement around the world. I mean, I actually remember sitting on the couch and watching on television as these massive protests were taking place in New Zealand and in South Korea, you know, and in these places that I had not imagined, you know, you would see tens of thousands of people taking the streets regarding the killing of a Black person in the United States. So I think that does say a lot, right, about the power of internationalist consciousness. I think it says a great deal about the fact that I continue to believe, and some people accuse me of being a little Pollyanna (laughs) because of this, but I continue to believe that there are more people in the world who believe in the value of humanity and who want to see the creation of a just and fair and peaceful and harmonious world than the folks who would like to see the conflict and tension continue. So I continue to believe that there are more people on the side of good in the world than not. And I think those protests proved that. I think the challenge that you you know, alluded to is that we do have to figure out how to sustain a movement, right? How do we move from a situation where we are largely reactive in response to a particular incident like the murder of of George Floyd to one where we actually create and sustain a truly just society. And I think that remains the challenge, right? How do we channel that energy so that it's not just an explosive response to a particular event, but it becomes a sustained movement that ultimately leads to justice. And one of the things that concerns me is that when you look at the data, almost 2,000 people in the United States have been killed by the police since the murder of George Floyd. So we have seen a change in consciousness on a daily level, but we actually have not seen that transform the process and the functioning of policing. And that's an issue of extraordinary concern to me, especially when you see the continuation, for example, of policies like the no-knock warrant that simply allow the police to burst into people's homes unannounced and wreak havoc on whatever they feel like is happening in there. I mean, we saw, for example, just last year, the murder of Amir Locke by police as the result of of a no-knock warrant. Breonna Taylor's death was the result of of a no-knock warrant. So I think, you know, what concerns me is that 
while we have this inspiring movement, right, that is transforming people's consciousness, we need to take it to the next step where we actually see a change in practice as well. Leslie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm Sushma Raman, Executive Director of the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School and host of Justice Matters. You can listen to other episodes of Justice Matters on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more about our work at the center at our website, carcenter.hks.edu. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. This is Justice Matters. Thanks for listening.